Good morning. Uh, I don't need a thumbs up. We're rolling, aren't we? Yeah, this is new. Hi, hi, hi. Sorry. <laughs> that was the laugh track moment. Ha, 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 ha. Elliot's confused. Um, good morning. So, welcome uh, to Midtown 12 South. Uh, if you've been doing live services or in back and forth between home services and Midtown Home Church and, and these live services, there is maybe a little bit of confusion just in terms of the order of things. Uh, the live services that you're at right now are a week ahead of what is being recorded and sent out. And so you maybe are um, not off schedule, but this may be skipping around a little bit for you. But we have wrapped up our series on the priesthood of the believer where we talked about God's declared identity uh, for his people to be a royal priesthood to the world. God's declared identity to his people uh, to be a kingdom of priests to the world. We talked about that for five weeks, that what does it mean to be priests and priestesses to the world and to our neighbors and the fact that you are that because Jesus' blood has declared you that. And now, kind of taking one step farther into that, taking one, one farther step towards that direction, uh, now if we understand that that's who we are, we are priests in God's kingdom, how then should priests live how should priests behave themselves? How are we to carry ourselves? How should we move and groove in the world? What are our values? What is, what is the thing that is guiding our steps and our hands and our feet as we walk in this world? We're doing that by looking at the Ten Commandments, but we're using the Ten Commandments to catapult us to the New Testament to talk about a story or an interaction with Jesus that embodies or captures the heart of the commandment or the commandments we're studying. Okay, So very windy road. Does everybody understand? Everyone in here is nodding. Okay, home church, you better be nodding too. That we, we all perfectly understand that, that seamless transition between priesthood of the believer into how then should priests live, guiding us with the Ten Commandments and a New Testament story. So I'm about to read two sections of scripture, one from the Ten Commandments and one a New Testament essentially parallel or a New Testament um, story that gets at the heart of the commandment that we're reading. Okay? So the commandment is found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It is very short. This is commandment number six. Moses orders the people, you shall not murder. Okay? Now we're going to skip ahead to Luke chapter 10. This should be on your screen as well uh, at home. Or if you want to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, a familiar parable. Jesus says, or, uh, Luke tells us that on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? The lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, 
and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's the word of the Lord. So first, uh, let's unpack just briefly the commandment. Uh, the commandment in Exodus chapter 20, the sixth commandment, is actually just two words in Hebrew. The you shall not murder is just two words in Hebrew. It literally says, never murder. <laughs> Don't do it. It's bad. It's a bad idea. But here's what we have to ask, and, and here's how we are going to lean into this commandment and, and kind of catapult us to the, to the Good Samaritan is, never murdering is not the essence of the commandment. That's, that's the worst possible end of this commandment, never murder. But do you think that the heart of this commandment means that I could beat someone to a pulp to within an inch of their life, and then as long as I don't kill them, then I'm obeying the heart of this commandment? Or is the commandment suggesting something different? Is the commandment actually have buried within it an implication, an implied opposite? So if never murder is the commandment, then buried in the heart of that is actually something that's on the other side of that. What is the opposite of never murdering? It's you shall, not you shall not, you shall fight for life. You shall sacrifice your own well-being for the sake of other people. You shall love people at great cost to yourself instead of hating people at great cost to themselves. Practical compassion, preserving life even at great cost to yourself. This is tangible expressions of care and concern for people around you, even if it costs you something. That's the opposite of you shall not murder. That's the opposite of never murdering. The opposite is always do something to preserve life and cause life in people to flourish and to find joy and to find health and to find happiness and to find healing. And to get to the heart of that commandment, we come to a very well-known story in the New Testament, the Good Samaritan. And I'm sure that many of you have heard this story. You maybe even heard this story preached on. You certainly, if you grew up in the church, are aware of this. And even secular people are aware that the Good Samaritan is a teaching of Jesus. But I, wanna, I want us to slow down here because there, there are layers to this story. There are layers to this parable. And we're going to walk through a couple of them there are layers to it that if we just breeze through it with our familiarity, if we just breeze through this parable because we've heard it before, we will miss the layers of this. Jesus is a master teacher. And in this interaction, he is leading this man and the listener. He is leading them somewhere. He is not just telling a story as an example. We'll get to that in a minute. He's actually doing something that is very intentional by telling this story with its exact details to the man and to the audience. So the the parable or the interaction before the parable begins in verse 25. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I got to do? What action, what law do I need to keep? What do I need to perform in order to be secure for all eternity? From now until forevermore, what do I need to start doing or accomplish now in order to have myself, my sense of self, be secure and at peace from now until eternity? <clears throat> so Jesus answers very Socratically a question with a question. It's part of the mastery of Jesus' teaching, but the man asks, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Tell me something, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, what do you read in the law? How do you read the law? Tell me, tell me your thoughts on what you need to be doing. 
And the man answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He essentially summarizes the Ten Commandments. He essentially, the first four of the Ten Commandments is how to love the Lord and the back six of the Ten Commandments are how to love your neighbor. And so combined, the summary of the law of God is love the Lord your God with all you've got let the Lord dominate your solitude. Let the Lord be who is your primary affection. Loving God is your primary allegiance. And then out of that place, love your neighbor as yourself. That encapsulates the entire moral law of the Jewish people. So he gives that uh, answer to Jesus' question, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, yep, you win. Ding, ding, ding. Correct answer. Do this and you'll live. Just do what you just said. Don't be a hypocrite. Do what you just said is the law that you must keep in order to inherit eternal life, and you will be secure, and you will be safe, and you will get the thing that you desire. And this is where, again, Jesus, I mean, he, he is a master. He's a rabbi, but he knows how to teach, and he knows how to weave in and out. And this interaction begins to play into Jesus' hands because the man, this lawyer, he gets the right answer. Love God and love people. That's the right answer. Go do it. But Jesus knows that just having the right answer, having the right answer is not enough for this man to feel secure enough. It's not enough for this man to feel safe enough to say, I can just go do that and I'll be fine. So the lawyer says in verse 29, or Luke tells us about the lawyer in verse 29, that this, is, this, is, this is critical for us to hear this line. But he wanted to justify himself. How can I secure my standing? How can I be sure of my footing? How can I know that I will be held and kept by the God of heaven? How can my, how can my righteous, blameless, rightful standing be held secure before God? I need to justify myself. That's the heart of the man. I need security in the spiritual courts at all times, seeking to justify himself. And if we're honest, we're all asking that question. We're all wondering, what is gonna make me feel secure? What is gonna make me feel kept and held and hemmed in? What is gonna give me the security and the foundation and the confidence I need to walk through life? Because if I'm justified, everything else will be fine. And so I need to know I'm good. I need to know that something is holding me and something is stabilizing me. And the way that this man wants to, to, to clarify, the way this man wants to to, to uh, ascertain and to, to hold on to his own justification is he asks this follow-up question. Okay, love God and love neighbor. That's the right answer. Do this and I'll live. Okay, Jesus, wait before you go. Who's my neighbor? Neighbor is literally the term in the original language that means one who is near to you, which can mean relationally near or geographically near or physically near, one who is close to you. And, and a, a good Jew, a good God-fearing Jew would have understood the term love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. They would have understood it as the people that are in my community, the people that are, that are around me, the people that surround me, the people that share in my beliefs and worship Yahweh, uh, the, the God who, who found us and rescued us and saved us. And in our law, in our law of loving neighbor includes loving the resident alien, loving the foreigner, loving the people who have found their home among us, love them too. But the term neighbor also got passed down through Jewish rabbinical tradition 
to basically be able to, you can kind of shrink the circle of neighbor. As long as you stay within the, the, the letter of the law, you can kind of shrink this circle down to really only love people that you deem worthy of being loved in your circle. And whenever we or I get to decide who's in my circle, whenever I get to decide who my neighbor is, the circle will always get smaller. Always. And this lawyer is no different. The circle is getting smaller in his own mind by the question that he asks. Jesus just said, go love God and love neighbor. And he goes, yeah, yeah, but could you help me define what that term neighbor means? Because I need to know exactly who you intend for me to love. Essentially, he's saying, where are the limits of my love? A.J. Levine, who's a uh, Jewish New Testament scholar at Vanderbilt, in her book, uh, Short Stories by Jesus, where she walks through parables through kind of a Jewish lens, she says, the question, who is my neighbor, is really a polite way of asking, who is not my neighbor? Or, whose needs can I ignore? Or to put it bluntly, whom can I hate? Because if I want to shrink my circle of love, what I'm also asking you, if I'm saying, who do I not have to love, I'm also wondering, who's on the outside of that circle that I don't have to love and I'm allowed to hate out there? The man says to Jesus, clarify this circle for me, shrink down this law for me so that I can go and perform it and feel good about myself and I can feel secured and I can feel justified. If you'll just tell me who I'm allowed to love and whom I'm not allowed to love, whom I'm allowed to hate, I would leave this conversation feeling great, Jesus. Would you please help me here because I'm unsettled, I need to be justified, so will you help me out here by telling me who do I have to love and who am I allowed to hate? And so Jesus in response to that man's question, who is my neighbor, tells a parable. Now, A.J. Levine in that same uh, book uh, notes, anytime, anytime Jesus tells a parable in response to someone's question, the asker of the question is in for a rude awakening. That if Jesus is telling a parable to answer your question, you are probably going to be on the chopping block. Anytime someone asks Jesus a question and he answers that question with a parable, you are signing up for heart surgery with the man that invented hearts and invented surgery. <laughs> you, you are basically saying, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm laying myself out there with this question and if Jesus is going to respond with a story, you better listen to that story really closely even though it may hurt really bad. The man is going to be the focus of this story because the man is who's asking the circle limiting question. Please don't miss this as we walk through this story. Jesus is not just telling the story of radical love to describe what neighborly love looks like. There are many layers here. Jesus is telling a story to show this man that this lawyer actually has no interest in loving his neighbor. Jesus tells a story to this man to actually convince this man of what a fraud that he is for even asking the question to begin with. Jesus tells a story to show the man that he cannot justify himself so to a man that is trying to justify himself with jesus this man needs to buckle up <laughs> we may need to buckle up so jesus tells a story about a man that is on the jericho road it's a very well-known road in the ancient near east it goes from jerusalem which is almost a mile above sea level about 25 uh, feet uh, above sea level 2500, sorry, 2,500 feet above sea level, and it winds for 18 miles down a rocky path 
to about 700 feet below sea level. So it's, it's windy and it's rocky and there's cliffs and it's dangerous and it was a great place for muggers and robbers to hang out. And so because they knew there's no protection and there's, there's these shadows and there's places where people can hide out and it winds so much that people won't even see us coming. So it was known in the ancient Near East as a very dangerous road. And on this road, as would be expected if Jesus was telling a story about a man walking down this road, as would be expected, a man, a Jewish man, is walking from Jerusalem, probably from the temple. He's been doing temple things on annual uh, ceremonies or annual festivities. He's walking down to Jericho, probably where he's from. A Jewish man is walking home, and he gets mugged and stripped and left for dead. And then there's this progression of a priest and then a Levite who walk by this man who's been mugged and stripped and left for dead on the Jericho Road. They're walking down from Jerusalem too. They're walking down and they see the man and they completely ignore the man. And so these two Jewish men that Jesus talks about are not just any two Jewish men. A priest and a Levite means Jewish clergymen, like Jewish pastors, Jewish people who were really good people. These were, these were clergy classifications, a priest and a Levite. These were people who worked at the temple and would have done very spiritual things. They were professional Jews. They would have been doing all the works, all the spiritual works. They would have understood the law of God and taught the law of God and helped perform sacrifices and help people get to know God. And they completely ignore him. And so the question is, why do these two Jewish clergymen not stop? What's stopping them from helping this man out? What has so shrunk their circle that they feel justified, they feel right enough to say, I don't actually have to go love that man? Well, the Bible doesn't say, but there, there are some, there's some guesses that can be made. Some scholars think that these, these Jewish clergymen would have thought they would get unclean, ceremonially unclean, because you can't touch a dead body. You can't actually, and then you would be unclean for a certain period of time. The problem with that theory is, is that these people didn't even get close enough to figure out whether this man was dead or not. He's not dead. They don't really know if he's dead, and so really what is probably stopping these men from going over to help this man who's been beaten and left for dead is the fact that they see this man wounded and hurting, and they're saying, what if that happens to me? What if the robbers are using that man as bait? What if I go over there, and then I have to actually risk something that I don't want to sign up for? Or maybe these men were just way more selfish than that, and they just didn't want to help him. They just didn't like him. They just didn't care about him. Either way you look at it, whether it's ceremonially unclean, or I might get robbed too, or I just don't like this man, essentially the heart of both of these clergymen, the priest and the Levite, they're saying, what if loving this man costs me more than I want to pay? What if going over to help this man is actually going to cost me something that I don't want to give? And so this painful hole is left in the story by the neglect of these first two men. And then in verse 33, a Samaritan walks by. And we're going to unpack this a little bit, but for Jesus to use this detail, please don't miss that, this, that, that the fact that this third person is a Samaritan is not a mistake. This is a critical piece of the story for Jesus. Jesus telling the story, a priest, a Levite, and then somebody else. The third person who's going to be the hero, who actually is going to love the wounded man, could have been anybody. Could have been Johnny Jewish guy that just is walking by, and he's the hero of the story. Could have been anybody that was going to be the one who loves the wounded man. But Jesus intentionally makes it a Samaritan. 
See, because in the love your neighbor section of the Jewish law, as tradition had passed down through the centuries, that, that that law of loving your neighbor, actually that circle can get smaller and smaller as long as you follow the letter of the law. It became very clear to Jews in the, in the day of Jesus, they were very much allowed to exclude Samaritans from their circle. Yes, we have to love our fellow Jews, and yes, we are even to love the resident alien among us, but we do not have to love Samaritans, or as Jews refer to them as sons and daughters of darkness. Yes, Jews must love their neighbor, and yes, Jews must love resident aliens, but we don't have to love those evil people. They're evil and they're wicked. See, because what had happened was about 700 years before this moment in Jesus' day, uh, there was the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel. And we won't get into all that history. But what, what happened, what had happened was the Assyrians came and they brought with them lots of other people from different cultures and lots of other people from different religions and they settled those people in the northern kingdom. People had different gods and different ceremonies and different beliefs and different rules and different ways of viewing the world. And the, the Jews of the northern kingdom began to intermarry with those foreigners and they became Samaritans from the area of Samaria. And those Samaritans then had their own set of Jewish law, they had their own Old Testament, they had their own temple, they performed their own sacrifices, and they even began to say, even though we've intermingled, and even though we've taken on all these other gods and all these other cultural practices, we are still the rightful heirs of Abraham. In fact, the Jews down in Jerusalem, those are the fake ones, we're the real ones. In no uncertain terms, they had literally bastardized the Jewish religion, and for a Jew, their religion was their existence. So it would be tough to describe the level of cultural hate that Jews had for Samaritans. Democratic, ooh, Siri's been recording me. Uh, for Jews and Samaritans, the, the comparison, the, the closest comparison that we can try to get to today, culturally, like large groups of people, Democrats versus Republicans, literally does not scratch the surface. It does not even come close to scratching the surface of how much Jews and Samaritans would have hated each other. Jews loathed Samaritans and felt very justified in doing so. And so listen to what this hated Samaritan does. Listen to what this hated Samaritan does to the Jew that is on the side of the road in Jesus' parable, starting in verse 33. But a Samaritan, that should be triggering everybody in the room, the one that every listener at the original telling of this hated more than anybody. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, which is a hospital, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Did you hear the level of extravagant love that this Samaritan pours out on the wounded man? The abandoned, neglected, wounded man. And not only did he pour out extravagant love and compassion on this man, he poured it all out at great cost to himself 
Not just physical, like it cost him his time and he had to physically go lift this man on. It cost him economically. He paid for the man's hospital bill and then told the, the hospital manager, and whatever it cost me on top of that, I'll come back and pay you. This Samaritan does this all to take care of a Jewish man that hated his guts. This man is loving someone else, an enemy of his, at great cost to himself. If we want to put it in in our terms for today in our series that we've been looking at, this Samaritan is actually embodying the sixth commandment. He's doing the opposite of you shall not murder. He's actually fighting for life at great cost to himself. And remember, the lawyer essentially asks the question, who do I have a right not to love? And in this first layer of the teaching, Jesus is, is partially answering that question. He's saying, who do you have a right not to love? Nobody. In fact, Jesus will say many other times, Jesus says multiple other instances, in multiple other instances in the Gospels, Jesus says, you actually, I'm calling you, if you want to be part of my kingdom, and you want to do the things that are valued in my kingdom, you actually have to love your enemies. In fact, one scholar noted this week that Jesus is the only teacher in all of antiquity to pronounce the teaching, love your enemies. Jesus is saying this is radically upside down, and really, it's radically right side up, because it's what we were designed to do. But it feels radically upside down to love an enemy. So on the first level, on the first layer of this parable, Jesus is saying this is what loving a neighbor looks like. But that's not the only layer here. That may have been how you've heard it taught, and it's certainly there. That's certainly partially true. But it's not the most important layer of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is intentionally exposing this man by this parable. And we know that because Jesus doesn't actually answer the man's question. Jesus flips the question. The man asks him, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus asks at the end of his teaching, which of these men was a neighbor? Not, who do I have to, who am I allowed to love and not love? And Jesus is saying, I'm actually teaching you what it means to be a neighbor. Not who's on the in and who's on the out of who you are and aren't allowed to love. Jesus doesn't answer this man's question because the point of the parable was to answer a different question. He's trying to flip this guy on his head. He's trying to get the guy unsettled to see things very differently. With this display of what it means to be a neighbor, Jesus is holding up the mirror of a Samaritan to this man, to this lawyer, and saying, do you love people this way? Is this how you view loving your neighbor? Do you view it like this? And even more startling is the fact that the parable is told in such a way that the lawyer literally would have hated the way that it ended. He would have been so uncomfortable and so frustrated and and so seething with anger at Jesus for doing it this way. Because this man would have had to admit, the one that you're telling me to emulate Jesus, the one that you're telling me is the hero of the story, is a Samaritan. I hate Samaritans. And we get that from the man, because when Jesus asked the question, which of these men uh, was a neighbor to the hurting man, the guy, the lawyer can't even say the Samaritan. He won't even say his name. He's just gritting through his teeth, the one who showed him mercy, I guess. Like the, the, There's no way you can be telling me to emulate that guy. The one who showed him mercy, he says, he can't even admit and name him the Samaritan because the lawyer hates Samaritans. The lawyer hates the hero of the story. 
This is why the lawyer asked the question to begin with. Like imagine the lawyer asking the question, who is my neighbor? The lawyer would have skipped and whistled away from Jesus if Jesus had said, who's your neighbor? Anybody except Samaritans. You can, you, you can love everybody you want. You do not have to love Samaritans. Like I would have been, man, that is awesome, Jesus. I feel so justified. He was hoping to be freed He was hoping to be set free by Jesus to go and continue to hate Samaritans. But then Jesus tells a story where the Samaritan is the hero. I want you to try to imagine if Jesus told this story, literally try to imagine this, that Jesus tells the story, wounded man on the side of the road, and a priest, a pastor, and a counselor, a priest and a Levite, a pastor and a counselor walk by, two people who you would think would do the right thing, two people you would think I would tell you to emulate, and then the third guy that walks by, the third guy that has to walk by and actually becomes the hero of the story is wearing a MAGA hat. And I want you to emulate him. I want you to go and be like him. Or maybe the, the third guy in the story is a, is a far left Democrat and has a Biden-Harris sign in his yard and posts about it on Facebook all the time. I want you to emulate that guy. How would you feel in your soul, depending on where you fall on that political line, where you go, wait, 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 Jesus, are you freaking kidding me? Do you want me to emulate that person who I can't stand? Or what if Jesus told the story and the hero of the story was the ex that cheated on you? Or what if the hero of the story was the boss that you work for who you think is so arrogant and you think needs to be radically humbled and you wish would experience a little bit of pain? Or maybe in this current season of your life, what if the hero of the story was the spouse that you're currently married to that you can't stand right now? And Jesus told you a story and said, I want you to be just like them. See, in telling the story the way Jesus did with the specific characters that he did, he's showing the lawyer that this is not a love that the lawyer possesses. How does he know that? Because the lawyer hates the very man he's supposed to be emulating. The punch is not so much that the extravagant love of the Samaritan is a great example to follow. The punch is the fact that it is a Samaritan that's doing the loving, and the lawyer can't stand this. He can't admit it. He can't admit that I have to be like that Samaritan, therefore exposing the fact that he cannot love his neighbor, especially Samaritans. And if he can't love his neighbor... Then according to his own standards, as the story began in Luke, in the Luke version of the story, then this man can't be justified by his own merit. Remember, he's trying to justify himself. And he thinks, man, if Jesus would just give me an answer that I could go do, I could be justified on my own. And Jesus gut punches him to the point where he knows now I can't be justified by what I do because I hate the guy that Jesus just told me to emulate. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, actually says, if you hate someone in your heart, it's just as guilty, you're just as guilty as actual murderers. That hate in your heart in in the heavenly courts is just as atrocious, is just as heinous as murdering people. And so according to the standard of Jesus' law, this man is guilty. He's certainly guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. That's why Jesus tells this story This man, this lawyer, is so radically incapable of loving loving his neighbor that Jesus has to tell him a story to prove that to him. You don't love this way, bro. 
this whole charade you've got, you stood up, verse 25 tells us of Luke, you stood up to test me, and you're here to justify yourself. This is all a giant show for you. And I'm telling you this story because I love you, because I have to get you to see yourself rightly, because this is all fake. You don't love your neighbor, and you certainly don't love God. This is all just for show. This is all just so that you can justify yourself. You're not interested in loving. You're interested in you. You loves you some you, lawyer man. You're so interested in you. The goal of all of this was just to justify you. You weren't concerned with love. So let me tell you a story that will get at that place in you. So let me ask this question bluntly. Who do you hate? And I'm asking that, uh, you don't have to raise your hand, we're not gonna like, ask you actually right here. You can share at home if you'd like with people, unless someone in the room is someone that you hate, don't do it. Uh, but the, or maybe you could ask for forgiveness. But the, the idea is this, is that there are people in your world that you hate even though you know that's not supposed to be the right answer in a church. Who is someone that drives you crazy? See, this week, this season, this political season, this moment in time is ripe with the ability to hate other people across the aisle from us. And I'm not even going to go into a litany of options of, of like, do you hate this person or do you hate that person or do you hate this kind of person or that kind of person for you to try to imagine someone you might hate let me just say, if you believe in your mind and in your heart that there aren't people that you hate, then you are living in radical self-deceit. You're like this lawyer who actually thinks there are people that are, I, I don't have anybody that I like enough or that I would actually want to hate enough until you heard a story like this. Who is someone that you would love for the Lord to humble them? Who is someone that you would love for the Lord to teach them a lesson, not because you care about them learning a lesson, but because you think they deserve it? Who is someone that when you see their posts on social media, your blood boils? Who is someone that you would love to see have some pain in their life and some hardships like the ones you've gone through? Who is someone that you think it would only be right and fair if they would have to go through the same things that I go through? Who do you love talking about behind their back with other people? Now I need to clarify something. When I talk about who do you hate, I'm not talking about who do you have righteous anger towards that has potentially abused you or deeply wounded you. Biblically speaking, righteous anger and hate are very different things. In fact, righteous anger is sometimes the most loving thing that people need from you. And I'm not talking about being best friends with people that have ripped your heart out. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what's going on in here when you see someone that is on the other side from you and you actually love hating them. Please understand the difference. If we can be honest for a moment, there are people in our world who we not only don't love, there are people in our world who we hate and we would love it if Jesus, we would love it. Like whoever it is that came to mind, someone that you don't like, someone that you hate, not righteously, we would love it if we came to Jesus and said, Who's my, who do I have to love and who do I not have to love if he named that person? Who fits that description? That you would go, I would love it if Jesus would tell me I don't have to love my in-laws. I would love it if Jesus would tell me I don't have to love my roommate. I would love it if Jesus would free me from having to love people that I don't want to love. But do we know what it does to us 
when we hold on to that bitterness and that hate? Do we know what it does to our own soul to hold on to that self-justified rage? See, here, here, here's what is so, here's how we can relate to this, to this lawyer man so much who, want, who had people that he hated and he had really good reason to do that. He, he felt so justified in his hatred of Samaritans that he wasn't even thinking that Jesus could possibly tell him he had to go love Samaritans. We, in our hate, we always have great justified reasons for why we hate those people. But do you know what it's doing to you to hold on to those justified reasons to hate those people? Well, to put it in terms of the story, what it's doing to you, what it's doing to me, is that it leaves us naked and dying on the side of the road. See, this, this is, remember what we said at the beginning? Whenever Jesus, whenever Jesus answers a question from someone with a parable, you can almost be certain, no, you can be certain that the asker of the question will be a character in the parable. Just not the one that he probably or she thought probably they would be. So who is the lawyer man in the parable? Which character is the lawyer man? He's the Jew lying on the side of the road in great need. Lawyer, you are not the hero. You're not the one that is to be emulated. You're not the great lover. And you're not a priest and you're not a Levite. You're a lawyer. You're a, you're a professional uh, studier of the Jewish law. And so the only character that he can be in the parable is the man that's on the side of the road left for dead. You are the man lying on the road, lawyer man, lying in great need. And do you know how you got there? Do you know why you're half naked and dying on the side of the road? Because of all of your attempts to shrink your circles of love. That's actually killing you. Your ability to hold on to hate and your craving to try and justify yourselves with your small circles of love is actually killing you. It's destroying you to hold on to that. Same for us. That our, 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 our ability to shrink our circles, to justify who we hate, and our desire to not have to love people in our world is killing us. And so what if Jesus was telling the story on this next layer for the primary reason to get us to see ourselves and to see him differently? See, we're the ones that aren't doing well. We're the ones that are naked and needy on the side of the road. We're the ones that have been left for dead. And what does Jesus do with those that are left naked and dying and needy on the side of the road? What does Jesus do with people who don't love as we should? What does Jesus do with people who shrink their circles of love? Well, Jesus tells the story of one who came from another land. Jesus tells the story of one who came and on the side of the road was, was this man's enemies. And Jesus tells the story of one who came to those who hated him and had compassion on them and bound up their wounds and brought him safely to healing and, and, and paid every cost necessary for that healing. Who do you think Jesus is talking about here? Who have you heard of that loves without limits like that? Jesus, the great Samaritan, tells a story ultimately about himself. Hear with me again, verse 33 through 35, and hear the description of this parable through the lens of Jesus. But a Samaritan, 
But Jesus, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. He came to where he was. He saw him. He had compassion on him. He went to him. He bound him up. He tended to his wounds. He set him on his donkey. He brought him. He carried him to health and to healing. He took care of him and paid for all that it cost him. Jesus is the great Samaritan who loved when he was being hated. And for those that hated him, Jesus is full of compassion. And for those that love with limits, Jesus loves without exception. And for those that are exhausted from trying to justify themselves, Jesus actually binds up those wounds that come from such fickle attempts. And for those that are trying to prove themselves, Jesus pays for all that his enemies owe. Jesus is the hero of this story. To put it bluntly, if we, if we really want to get inside like the mind and the heart of the Good Samaritan, the Great Samaritan Jesus, listen to this. Your Jesus knows what sin has done to you. Your own sin and the sin of someone else. Jesus knows the wounds that are there that you've caused to yourself. Jesus knows the scars that are there. Jesus knows the bitterness that's in there. Jesus knows the shame that's in there. He knows what sin has done to you. He knows it's left you on the side of the road. And listen to how he handles you in knowing what sin has done to you. He comes to you. He sees you. He has compassion on you. He binds up and tends to your wounds and he brings you to a place to get healed and he pays for all of it with his own blood. Romans chapter five says that while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. See, the lawyer asked the question, who is my neighbor? And by asking the question, he shows the limits of his love And Jesus tells the story of one who loved without limits those who hated him. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That may not be the Jesus you know, but that is the Jesus of the Bible. Remember the lawyer's question was was rooted, Luke tells us, the lawyer's question was rooted in a heart that was trying to justify himself. And Jesus is saying, do you know that in all of your attempts to justify yourself, it's leaving you naked and wounded on the side of the road? But your desire to be justified will not come by your own merits. Your your desire to be justified will not come by anything you do. This is how you get justified. This is what your justification looks like. It looks like one who has come from a different country to come and love you even though you hated him. There is nothing more secure than to be held for all eternity in the love of Jesus. That is your justification. That was the lawyer's justification. But until we see ourselves as wounded and naked on the side of the road, half alive and left for dead, we will never experience the love of the great Samaritan this way. But then, as we experience that love, and as we continually experience that love, 
we then go and we love at great cost to ourselves. Because in reality, here's the secret we know. Here's the secret of the Christian life in loving enemies and in loving people who you don't want to love. It will cost you something, but it won't cost you more than you can pay. Because Jesus, the love of Jesus, is all that you need to love your enemies. And you have an infinite supply of that. So what you need to pay out, what you need, what it will cost you, it will cost you. But I promise you, your pockets will be full every time you put your hands in. Because the love of Jesus will not leave you poor. Jesus in Matthew 5 says that love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. And in so doing, you will be children of your Father. Meaning this, when God's people, when God's priests love our enemies and love those that are outside of our circle, we become like our Father. We take on the family resemblance because that's what he did. who more than you could possibly fathom has sent the great Samaritan Jesus to love you when you were his enemy. Loving enemies is what Jesus did. And loving enemies is what priests of that kingdom are called to do as well. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we need you. We're wounded and needy and naked and ashamed. Enlarge our circles, Jesus, but... um, Do that only by the experience of being tended to by you, our great Samaritan. Guide us now as we come to your table. Give us um, the ability to taste and see just how good you are to us in your name. Amen.